We began last time, or really the time before, it took us two weeks to get through the Ten Commandments, we began what is officially called the Book of the Law. Of course, Genesis through Deuteronomy are all called the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law. But now we've actually gotten into the laws themselves. This is the part of the Bible where everybody starts skipping stuff. <laughs> because you get into it and it's not stories anymore. Now we've actually got laws. And last week we looked at the rest of the Ten Commandments, which are the ones everybody knows. But there are 603 more commandments to go through. Less famous and we're going, in fact, to go through every single one of these. We're going to read them. We're going to study them. Sometimes you may go quicker than others, but there's really a lot to get into here. And it's important that we go through this because if you've not read through the law in detail like this, when someone comes in and tells you we have to keep the law as Christians, and then they lay something out to you that looks nothing like what we read in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, then you'll know that whatever they're talking about, they're not talking about this. There are, in fact, three sections of laws in the book of the law. You have a lot of instruction about ceremonies, a lot of instruction about sacrifices, and, and there are some narrative stories in there too. But as far as laws that people were to keep, you have three sections. One of them is here in Exodus. There's another one in Leviticus, and there's another one in Deuteronomy. This is not counting the the building of the tabernacle and the furniture and things like that. These are just the laws themselves. And this section is going to begin here, or really it's already begun with the Ten Commandments, and it'll go to chapter 23, verse 19, and then it will pivot and begin to discuss some other things. And as we go through this, we're going to come across a lot of things that are going to make you go, what? Why is that even in the Bible? Why did we need that? Why, what did that have to do with anything? But you need to remember God was not just creating a religion here. He was building a society. Israel was to be a country. It was to be a nation state. And this was not just a, a list of good suggestions for the people to follow. This was their actual law. If you read about the lawyers in the Gospels, they were men that studied this law right here. This was as much the law for them as the Constitution and the following amendments and the state laws and all of that are laws for us today. It's not just nice, it's actually binding upon the people, which is why we must go through it one verse at a time so that you know what's actually in it. And you'll see that it is very broad and it's going to cover things ranging from the things they could eat to laws concerning warfare to there's going to be a whole section on revenge and how to handle that. And it's, it's important to remember he's building a country and a nation state here. And we are, as I said, going to look through every one of them. This is God's holy word. And the Bible says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction and instruction in righteousness. So we're going to go through all of it. I will say that as we go through this, it will be harder for me to break it up in a way that feels cohesive sometimes because it's just not really written in a way that flows like Paul flows or the book of Genesis flows with its stories because you're reading the law book. So there may be times where it feels less inspirational, perhaps, but it's important that we still get through it. There is much for us to learn, and I, I do hope there will be a lot that is of interest to you as well, particularly if you enjoy reading about other cultures and history and things like that. I would also like to remind you of what we went over two weeks ago. I gave a, a four-point 
process or system, you could say, of how we are to read and interpret the law of Moses as New Testament Christians. And this was very easy with the Ten Commandments, less so with the commandments that we're going to read, not so much tonight, I think, but in some of these ones about what to do when your ox gores somebody, for example. Uh, But I just want to run through those four really fast. Number one was to sort out the specifics Right? We are not under the law, but it's still God's inspired word. So sort out what, is, what specific details are here that probably are not going to apply to somebody under the new covenant. But number two, you're going to apply the principles. What is the lesson that God is teaching? Why would God give this commandment in the first place? Apply that. Number three, you do what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. Intensify the heart. If the lesson is about taking responsibility for your neighbors, well, intensify that to the nth degree until you are obeying the heart of what God is trying to communicate. And number four, as always, you submit to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's, that is our law under the new covenant. We submit to what the Spirit says, not to the written code, but in fact, the Bible calls it the new way of the Spirit. And we've discussed that in great detail, but it's just good to have this framework in mind as we go through some of these things. Because many of these commandments are going to seem foreign to us. Not just as in strange that that's in there, but radically different cultures. Because it was a radically different culture. This was thousands and thousands of years ago. And it's not America, and it's not even Western culture. Especially tonight, as we're going to focus on what the law says about slavery. I want to remind you as we begin, this is God's word. And while we may not understand everything right away, our beginning stance is to accept and believe what he has written here. That is our default position. Now, as we go through this, I will try to explain some of this to you. And some of the reactions you will have to some of these verses are not warranted as you break them down and understand them. But you're not going to like everything that is in the book of the law. Nobody, no culture anywhere reads the entire Bible and likes all of it. But that is where we must be corrected if necessary. With all of that said, and with a posture that always says, I'm submitting to the word of God, no matter how dear the principle I'm holding on to is, I hope that I can lay to rest some of your concerns related to this subject tonight. We're going to dive whole hog into the apologetics of what the Bible teaches about slavery. It's in the news a lot lately or has been not too long ago. Everybody wants to bring it up. It's a big part of what people call deconstruction. I'm taking apart my faith because it talks about slavery. We're going to address that topic head on tonight. And then for the following tonight and then next week as well, we're going to be looking at some of what the specific laws were. And once you actually get into this, you'll find that a lot of the hype that's built up around it is is just not the case. So we're going to begin tonight with Psalm 119, verse 18, which I think is a perfect introduction to these laws where it says, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. You might think the law, really, Leviticus, that's where we find wondrous things, right? Exodus 23, wondrous things. Oh, yes. It's about learning what God has to say and letting it instruct, stretch, correct, and comfort us as well. So we're going to begin chapter 20. We're going to finish this chapter off with verse 22 down to verse 26. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me or alongside me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. 
An altar of earth you shall make for me, and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar, that your nakedness be not exposed on it. So right away, this is a commandment that seems to have very little bearing on your life and mine, but it's, it's God's word. Let's understand it first, and then we'll see how we can apply it. Remember, context here, God has descended on Mount Sinai in fire and thunder and lightning and shouts, and he spoke the first 10 commandments from the mountain with a thunderclap, and the people heard it, and they asked Moses, can you please be the guy to talk to God for us? Don't, we don't want to go through that again. So God called Moses up to the mountain. So the mountain is still blazing. You're still having that theophany going on. But Moses is up there and God is now speaking to him personally. So this is no longer God speaking in thunder from the mountain. And he expands upon the first two commandments he gave, which were against polytheism or henotheism, which is having multiple gods, and against idolatry. And he does this by calling them to remember his power and his glory. He said, I talked to you from heaven. You saw how glorious I am. You saw that there was no form. There was no shape. It was my voice coming to you out of heaven. Therefore, don't, number one, try to bring up some other God that you made out of gold and say, he's also one of our gods. He goes, what other God does this? After everything that I've just done to you and shown you and how scared you all were just to hear my voice, I don't want to see y'all bringing in somebody else alongside me or before me, he'll say in other places. He says, I dwell in heaven. I don't dwell in your silly little idols. And he also tells them not to make an idol, not even of him. This is important to note. The golden calf that will be made in a couple chapters from now was supposed to be a, an image of the Lord himself. They weren't just picking a calf God to worship. They said, let's create a calf and that will represent Yahweh. Also later on, when Jeroboam will build two golden calves, right? What's better than one golden calf? How about two? Uh, when he splits from Rehoboam, we'll create two golden calves and they also are to represent the Lord. But that is also prohibited. An idol or an image is not to be an aid in worship. Because he says, you can make nothing that can adequately and respectfully represent me. If you were to call somebody to make a portrait of the president, you know, they always have those famous presidential portraits and you get the greatest artist of the day to come in and, and he were to come in and, you know, make a little stick figure of the president and say, there you go. Looks just like, it looks nothing like me. Well, it reminds me of you. That's insulting that this reminds me of you. Well, why, why would God not like that? Because you can't make anything that is not going to take attention away from the Lord. John 4, 24, he said, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Other religions would have a giant gold statue up here and you would look to that and that's what you worship. We come here, the only reason I'm standing up here is so you can see me. It has nothing to do with, with this is where the God is. We worship the Lord who is invisible, and for that reason, we do not make images of him. In addition to that, he gives them this instruction about altars. He says, my altars are to be made of uncut stones or 
earth or dirt. An altar, in case you didn't know, is a platform that would be made where the sacrifice would be made. Very often, they would actually be hollowed out, very similar, in fact, to a barbecue, so that you could light the fire and that it would heat up and you would place the, the meat or the sacrifice on top. And I say exactly like, because except for the case of the whole burnt offering, you would cook the sacrifice and then eat it. It was how you had communion with the Lord. So he says, when you make one of these for me, I want it to be made of uncut stones. So piling up rocks, don't shape it. Don't use a tool to make it look nice or of earth. Just a few shovelfuls of earth or a pile of rocks is all that he wants. So far, we have seen Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Moses make altars like this. When it says they made an altar, very often it will say he raised up a stone or something like that. Very primitive is how God wanted it. Later on, we're going to see Joshua, Gideon, Manoah, who was Samson's father, Samuel, Saul, David, and Elijah all make altars like this. This is important to know because later on, the Lord is going to tell Moses in the tabernacle and later on in the temple that the altar for the sacrifices was to be made out of bronze. So you've maybe heard the brazen altar before. And the incense altar, which is where they would heat up the incense, was to be actually made of gold. It was a wooden box that was uh, covered with gold. So this is not a contradiction here. What God is saying, if you're going to make a temporary in the moment altar, make something down and dirty. If it's going to be something in my place of worship, then God would mandate something more, more, I guess, long lasting, something that's not going to fall apart all the time. And that would be worthy of the sacrifices that were being brought. So this can be a little confusing because we say, well, I thought they were only supposed to worship at the tabernacle or the temple. They were, but it seems that God permitted instances of, of celebration or of, of worship to the Lord, spontaneous worship, that he says, if you're going to build me an altar to sacrifice, then just make one out of dirt, make one out of, out of stones. What he was prohibiting was when Passover rolls around, don't think you can have your own altar in your backyard. You can come to my, my altar and worship me there. God, here's our principle we learned from this, is not in need of lavish worship. He said, don't put stairs on my altar. You think, that's kind of a weird thing. Why is that? Well, in this day, the most famous altars in the world were the ziggurats of Babylon that had stairs that went all the way up to the top, very similar to the Tower of Babel. And the thought was, the higher up you get, the closer to the gods you are and the better they can hear you. And then that image on the right is, a, is one of the temples they had in Mexico, the Aztec temples. They would perform human sacrifices at the top of the stairs like that. But it was the same idea. The Lord says, I don't want you building me anything like that. And he actually gives the reason for it is, I don't want you to expose yourself by going up on those steps. So not only is he promoting modesty in someone's person, in fact, the priests were required to wear linen undergarments. That's what uh, the ephod was, which was not the normal dress of the day because the Lord did not want anybody that was performing his work to be immodest in any way. So not only modesty of dress and of person, but modesty in presentation and in appearance as well. God goes, I don't want you to build me anything that is lavish and keep it for yourself. Later on, God will permit structures like the temple to be built. But do you remember what he said to David when David first requested that? He says, I've been traveling in tents for hundreds of years. I've never once asked you to build me a temple. I don't need a temple. But if you want to do that for me, David, then I will permit that. 
What we learn from that is that how lavish or nice or fancy your building or your cathedral or whatever it is, stained glass, no stained glass, pews, no pews, we gain or lose nothing. It's not that it is wrong to do it one way and good to do it another way. It matters nothing. So why the Lord tells him, I'd prefer you just to keep it pretty simple. Because right now, 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells among us. So this is why we don't do some of the, the other traditions where they say, well, this is where the Holy Spirit comes and then this is where Jesus lives. No, no, no. This building is not a temple. This building is a place where we congregate. That's kind of what church, ecclesia, the gathering meets. We are the temple of God when we come together, which is why we can worship just as well in our home fellowships or out in the field somewhere because God is with us. And that command to modesty, both in dress and in appearance, teaches us the holy nature of service in God's church. There's no place for selfishness in worship. I'm going to build this altar and everybody's going to know how great I am. And they're going to walk by and they're going to say, wow, that's wonderful. It's going to happen in the book of Judges when the people start making their own altars because they don't want to go all the way to Hebron where it was at the time or Shiloh. There's no place for immodesty. And I'll tell you, I don't want to go off on this because it'd be easy to. It really bothers me that we see so many of our worship leader Christian musicians that are going out of their way to present themselves in a sexually attractive way. And obviously they're not doing anything like what the world does, but you know, you, you, can, you can present yourself in such a way that is intended to be provocative and suggestive without being what we might call technically immodest. That is not what this is supposed to be for. That's not what worship leading is. That's not what preaching is. You can do this in preaching having nothing to do with your appearance, but just in the way you conduct yourself and you're intending to draw attention to the way you speak or the way you act or what you've accomplished, taking away from the Lord, which is also an extension of not building an idol. You're not supposed to hold anything else up to be looked at other than the Lord. Our God is a holy, invisible divinity. So our worship ought to reflect his glory by its purity by its simplicity, any lack of pretension or profanity. I don't just mean cursing, but it obviously should include that. Just in the way that we act. We don't, we don't, you don't play worship music like you play anything else because it's not, it's not like anything else. And anybody I know who's been in worship ministry that did not grasp that immediately would always become a problem. You're not doing this like you do anything else. Worship songs are so simple, they're so boring. Well, of course, they're supposed to be singable by everyone. Oh, there's not as much flash and flavor in the music. Well, there's not supposed to be because the music is supposed to help the church worship, not to draw attention to the music itself. That is the purpose of preaching and worship and any kind of service in the church. Psalm 29.2 says, Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. You want something to be splendid in the way that you worship? Let it be the holiness of the congregation come together. There's a reason Americans that are used to mega churches and, and big buildings and lights and all that, I'm not opposed to any of those things necessarily, but they go to these little underground churches in China or somewhere else, and they're just overwhelmed. Even though there's nothing that you look at that would go, wow, but when you're there, the presence of God is there. That's the most important thing. The splendor of holiness. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. If you start bringing you and your stuff and your ideas and your ambitions to the service of the Lord, you profane it. Important to know. It's a little verse about altars, but 
it matters. What the Lord reveals about himself through the conducting of altars matters. So you see how this works. Under the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the once for all sacrifice. We don't offer sacrifices anymore. So we're not building altars anymore. But what do we learn about God that still applies to us from this passage about altars? Do you see how this goes? That's our first lesson. And then we're going to move into chapter 21. And I plan to get through the first six verses here. We may, may go a little farther, but I don't think we'll have time. This is when we begin to talk about slavery in the Old Testament. Why does God put that right at the beginning? Well, because the whole theme of Exodus is them coming out of slavery, them being liberated from slavery. So God's first priority after the worship of the Lord is to make sure that they don't fall into the same sins that Egypt did. So we're going to address this head on, and I'm not going to be breaking down the passage for a little bit here, because I want to do a broad biblical overview and a, a theological assessment of what the Bible teaches about this subject. And I'm going to go very slowly in terms of what I say to hopefully lead you to the conclusion that the Bible gives us. And uh, th this is a, a, a tough thing to teach, obviously, in these times. I don't I don't really have a problem with what the Bible teaches. I think when it's properly understood, but if it seems like I'm reading some of this, I am because I, I want to make sure that I'm not flippant and I'm not careless about what I say here. But let's, let's get into this. The first thing we're going to do before we look at anything the Bible says, we ought to begin by acknowledging that we, as 2022 Americans, have a cultural bias against any kind of slavery or involuntary servitude. This is good to do, to know that whatever the, if the Bible is going to teach something about X subject, if we already have strong feelings about it, we've got to acknowledge that first, because you don't want your strong feelings about any subject to affect how you're going to interpret it. We insist on this with other subjects. There's some people that have very strong opinions about sexuality, for example. And what do we do? We thump the Bible and we insist that we pay attention. When we go to other cultures that have very strong beliefs about different things, we thump the Bible and insist they pay attention. Well, we've got to do the same thing for ourselves, too. The moment I say the word slavery, all kinds of emotions are riled up. We don't like it. And I will say that's a good thing. It's good. That's a good thing to have a cultural bias against because not only did we, as a country, engage in slavery for a long time to a horrific degree, but we also ended it and insist upon liberty for all people as a nation. Our founding document, all men are created equal, right? And in fact, every step of progress we've made along this line has been from somebody standing up and saying, we're not living up to this thing. Remember Martin Luther King Jr. said, we're here to cash a check. This is what's been said and it's not being lived out. So that is what we believe as a nation, and it's a good thing. But even good things can skew how you read and understand the Bible. So I'm not even making any point about it yet. I'm just saying, however strongly we may think we know something to be true, we have to be prepared to bow before God's word if it opposes us. This is important to know, and it's a hard lesson to learn. But let's just acknowledge that first, that if the Bible is going to teach something about slavery that is anything other than don't ever do it, not even a little bit, we're going to have a problem with it. Let's acknowledge that. So, understanding that, we have to face up to the fact that that is not what the Bible says. It does not abolish slavery. 
Which means what you and I, and I'm including myself here, as Americans, what we see as the only available moral position is not what the scripture gives us. Right away we have a problem. Right away we have an issue. But there's no debate about it. There's no way, I'm going to tell you now as an honest teacher, to twist the Bible to say when it says this, it actually means something else. What the Bible instead does is to regulate slavery very heavily, I might add, with various laws, various prohibitions, what you can and cannot do. And in fact, a lot of the things you're going to read, you're actually going to be surprised by because all the people that want to harp about what the Bible says about slavery miss quite a bit about what it says. But you and I, as Americans, don't really care to hear any of that. We don't want to hear, well, it's slavery, but, you know, it's controlled and it's regulated. We're like, no, 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 we don't do that. In fact, this is because pro-slavery advocates back in the day, like South Carolinian John C. Calhoun, he was the vice president a couple times, senator from South Carolina. He was the one who in the 1830s, late 1830s, first articulated the pro-slavery position in America. Up until that point, the founding fathers, you read them, they had been saying things like, slavery is a necessary evil. We've got to get rid of it, but now is not the time. That was Thomas Jefferson. That was George Washington. That was James Madison, John Adams, and others. But then you get to this guy. And he was the leading voice who argued for slavery, not as an economic necessity, but as an actual positive good. Slavery is not something regrettable. It's a good thing that we're doing. And he and others like him stood on the Bible to make that claim. Wildly inappropriate use of scripture, as we will see. It doesn't make it right. But because guys did that, there are many people that are really cagey when we start to talk about what the Bible actually says. But you and I as believers gain nothing by denying what God has put into his word. So that's the first thing is that we have a cultural bias. The second thing is that the Bible permits slavery. It does not prohibit slavery. That's the, that's the foundation here. But let's move on now. Number three is that God has required righteousness from everyone involved in the institution of slavery or any other. Lord goes, when you do this, you're going to do it in a godly way. We say, how is that possible? Well, let's read Ephesians chapter six, verse five, and then I'll skip down to verse nine, but it's worth your time to read the whole passage. He says, bond servants, which is douloi in the Greco-Roman culture. This meant slave Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ. The only time the Bible tells us that we, mu- we can flout the authority above us is if they are compelling us to sin. And that applies to slaves too. But verse 9 says, Masters, do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. The Lord tells us in the New Testament, in the church, slaves, respect your masters like you respect Christ. Masters, treat them like you should, like Christ would treat them. Because God's watching you. And don't be threatening and always, always threatening to sell people down the river that you're going to beat them black and blue. No, no, that's not what Christians do. And we're actually going to look, not so much tonight, but as we go on, in great detail at the regulations that the Old Testament provided regarding slavery. And what you will actually see is that it's, it's not, it doesn't quite resemble what we consider and think about when we hear that word. 
Why would God do this? Because the Bible is less concerned with social structures as it is with the people who live within those social structures. If you're trying to use the Bible as your instrument to tear down society and build up a new one, you've got the wrong book, my friend. It just simply doesn't do that. And we might wish it was. It doesn't. It just doesn't do that. It addresses the heart of every per person at every strata of that society. Wherever you are, God wants you to be righteous, whether you are a slave or a slave owner. So while the Bible does not abolish slavery, it commands those who are involved in it to act in such a way that any abuse or excess associated with slavery would not happen. We hear slavery and we think, well, this happened, the beatings and, and all the, the rapes and all that kind of stuff. Or if you were a slave owner, what about the rebellions that could happen? What about this and that? The Lord goes, I want you all to act in such a way that none of that would happen. So if any slave owner anywhere had kept what the word of God said, the excesses and abuses that we know about historically would not have happened. And I will say without reservation, and I just did my research, so I know what I'm talking about here. Neither the Romans of Paul's day nor the antebellum South obeyed the commands from Ephesians. None of them did. Rome had slave pens where they would keep slaves penned up so they could go and fight in the gladiator games. They were killed and slaughtered for entertainment. You know, we have TV and it's CGI and it's not real. If they wanted to see that, they had to actually kill somebody. And that's what they did. It was awful. It was terrible. And the antebellum South did not obey these mandates either. So they don't have a leg to stand on when it comes to the Bible either, because as we will read, all the things that God said to do, which they were appealing to, they were not doing. So John C. Calhoun and his friends don't have any excuses biblically. Therefore, any abuse of any system of slavery you've heard of cannot be laid at God's feet, because that's not what he said to do. That was not his will. He didn't abolish the institution, but he said, here's how you're going to act in it. So when people don't act that way in it, you can't blame God for that. Now, let's move on. So number one, we know we have a cultural bias. Number two, the Bible does not prohibit slavery. Number three, God does require righteousness within that institution. But number four, you might ask, why didn't God just abolish it? That's, that's a fair question. Why not? It's such a vile thing. It's never gone well. Why would God not just get rid of it? Well, will you turn with me to Matthew chapter 19? This is such an important ethical section of scripture. I'd like you to read it with me. Matthew chapter 19. Lord, why didn't you just change the system? Well, let's read Matthew 19. This is a different issue, but it absolutely applies. In Matthew 19, we read verse 3, and I'm going to go down to verse 12. The Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The question that we still ask today. Is there ever a case where it's okay to get a divorce? We'll read verse 4. Jesus answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh? That's Genesis, right? So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So they say, Hey, is divorce okay? And Jesus goes, No. And then they say, 
Verse 7, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? They say, oh, you say we shouldn't get a divorce, but Moses said in the law that we could divorce each other. This is the law regarding divorce. So why would he do that then? Look at what Jesus says in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. This is Jesus, again, intensifying the principles of the law, right? Not Moses, but I say to you. So they say, should we get divorced? He says, no. Moses said we could. He says, yeah, God gave you that commandment because of your hardness of heart. What does he mean by this? He's saying God did not want some man when he's finished with his wife and is about to mistreat her, just to kick her to the curb and say, I don't want you anymore. Get out of my house. Now she's still technically married to this guy. She can't be brought into anybody else's house. What does she have left? So God goes, if you're going to do this, you're going to do it legally. She's going to get a certificate of paper that will permit her to remarry and move on with her life. Well, why didn't God just say, don't ever get divorced? It's because I know what you're like. And I knew what you would do if I did not put this regulation in place. That doesn't mean that I approve of it or like it. In fact, Jesus said, I can think of one case where you should do this. When there's been adultery and somebody has violated your marriage already. Other than that, you're committing adultery. Well, the disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. Those are young men talking, huh? Maybe we shouldn't just get married at all. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. There are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. So they go, well, maybe we just shouldn't get married if it's going to be that serious a thing. And God goes, you know what? There are plenty of people that don't need to get married. They're fine. So if you can receive that, receive it. It's, it's kind of an odd thing they're saying, like, well, if we can't get divorced, then why should we even get married? Now, it's not a great reaction to have from the disciples, but let's put this another way. Say, so if it's wrong to get divorced, then maybe we just shouldn't get divorced at all. Oh, there you go. You might phrase this this way related to our issue tonight. If God says you have to treat your slave like you would treat a son or daughter of God, because that's what they are. And then your next thought would be, if that's the case, then it's probably better not to have slaves at all, right? Now you're catching on. Now you're catching on. Do you see how this is related to that subject? God preferred divorce to a woman being flung into the streets with no recourse, but he never regarded divorce as something that was amoral. There are a number of issues in the Bible that I think fall within this category. Divorce is one of them. I'd put polygamy as one of them. Why did God allow people to get married multiple times? Because apparently God would rather there be multiple wives than adultery and fornication. Well, then if that's the case, maybe we shouldn't marry more than one person. Yeah. I put capital punishment on that list. Did God from the beginning say you need to execute people? No, but because of the hardness of heart, it goes, sometimes you've got to put a stop to certain people. Noah, he told him that. Revenge is going to be on this list. Why didn't God just say, never take vengeance? Because God goes, I know your heart and I know your passions and I know your culture. So I'm going to create this system called the cities of refuge to slow the process down. Government. God didn't give Israel a government. He gave them his law. Later on, they said, we want a king. 
He goes, I'm your king. You don't need a king. We want a king like everybody else. But he gave them the king to, in order to hopefully bring them to righteousness. And I think slavery falls in that category. These things are not God's ideal, but God would prefer them to the alternative. We're going to read through these passages. The way that they were to treat their slaves, we almost look at that and go, I wouldn't even call that slavery. As we look at it, that's what you're going to think. God did that because he goes, I don't want you to treat people like most people treat their slaves. So here's what I'm going to say. I'm not going to say go out and buy slaves. I'm going to say when you have a slave, here's how you're going to do it. He never mandated any of that, except as a punishment for some crime that was committed. It falls firmly in that category because of your hardness of heart. In order to forestall worse tragedies, like the kind of slavery you saw in Rome or the Old South, he gave them what we have in the Old Testament. So number one, we have a cultural bias against slavery. I think it's a good one. Number two, we have to know that the Bible does not prohibit slavery, but it does permit it. Number three, we have to know that everybody in that system was required to be righteous. Why then would God give that at all? Number four, because of your hardness of heart. This was the lesser of two alternatives on a social level. Remember, we're talking about a national government here. Number five, then, what is the Bible's ideal? Jesus said that the ideal for marriage was not divorce, but for them to be married and never to be separated from one another. So what's the Bible's ideal related to slavery? Well, you're probably already ahead of me. It is the abolition of slavery. The Lord will frequently call his children, and already has in the book of the law, to remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and I brought you out of slavery. So have that be in your head as you deal with your slaves. That's why the Lord gave them the Sabbath, one reason among many. He said, you're giving your slaves a day off, because you never got one when you were in Egypt. Now you might think, well, wait, if you were slaves in Egypt, then why would you have slaves now? That's probably God's idea. Wouldn't you feel a little guilty reading that passage, knowing that you had slaves back at home? That's what God was doing. And there are many provisions in the Old Covenant that would allow a slave to be freed or manumitted. We'll look at some of this next time. But if you injured your slave, the slave got to go free. If a slave ran away, you were not allowed to bring the slave back to the man he ran away from. Did you know that? Yeah, that's in your Bible. If a slave runs away to your house, do not bring him back to his old master. At that point, are they really a slave if they're allowed to leave at any time? Again, these institutions were very different. So those fugitive slave laws that the U.S. put in place towards uh, the end of the antebellum period, where folks were going up into places like Maine and New York and dragging slaves back, that was not biblical. So they can stand on the Bible all they want, but the Bible said you're not allowed to do that. So maybe you've ever wondered, like I have before, well, we love the Underground Railroad that was, the Christians were taking people out of, but was that biblical? God said to submit to your, to your masters. Yeah, but he also said that if they run away, don't send them back. That's in your Bible, but you never hear about that when somebody's trying to call down judgment against the church, do you? Then you have the New Testament, where masters and slaves are declared equal in Christ by the apostles. There is no Jew nor Greek or slave or free or male or female. No slave or free. Which means in the church, is, I don't want you all separating each other. Paul told that in 1 Corinthians. He said, you got, a, you got separate communion tables for rich people and poor people. He says, knock it off or I'm going to come over there and knock your heads together. 
We read about this in Romans 8. We're no longer have the spirit of slavery. We have the spirit of adoption as sons. And then you get to the book of Philemon, a short little book, one chapter in the Bible, where Paul sends from prison, sends a runaway Christian slave named Onesimus back to Colossae because Paul had met this, this guy, Onesimus, in Rome. Onesimus had gotten saved. Story came out, Onesimus was a slave who'd run away from Colossae. What's your master's name? Philemon. Paul knew Philemon. Philemon was in the church. And in the letter of Philemon, Paul sent him back. Once again, which the law did not require. But why would Paul do this? Well, Philemon verses 15 and 16, it says this. This perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant. No longer as a bondservant. Say it again. No longer as a bondservant. But more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And in Philemon 21, the whole point of the letter is Paul saying, please send uh, Onesimus back to me so that he can help me out. But in verse 21, he says, I am confident that you will do even more than I say. And Paul says things like, don't forget you owe me your soul, Philemon. What's he doing? He's writing this letter telling Philemon, you need to set your slave free. That's in the Bible. There's a whole book in the Bible about that, where Paul is telling a Christian to set his Christian slave free. We see then that God's biblical ideal, what did Jesus do? He went back to the garden. Did God create slavery in the garden? No. He created Adam. He created Eve and then their children that came after that. So the biblical ideal, because of our hardness of heart, God put the laws about slaves in the Old Testament, but the biblical idea is liberty and freedom. In 1 Corinthians 7, 21, Paul tells the slaves in the church, if you have the chance to get free, get free. After all the teachings in the Bible, Colossians 3.11, there is no difference between slave and free in God's church. Romans 8.15 says we no longer have the spirit of slavery. How could Christians continue in that? So while the Bible permits slavery at a social level, it leads the reader through all this progressive revelation and salvation history to a repudiation of slavery. So while we begin, we have a cultural bias against slavery. And then the Bible permits it and doesn't prohibit it. But then we see that God required righteousness in the system. Well, why have a system at all? Because of your hardness of heart. People are so wicked. If God didn't try to mitigate it, it would have gotten worse. But the New Testament ideal, number five, was freedom and liberty. But this is point number six. I can hear it now, and I've heard it before. People will say, but that's not enough. God's laws in the Old Testament, building up to Romans 8, and then the book of Philemon, that's not enough. God should have done more. It didn't work. It couldn't have worked. Well, you know, in the early church, in the Roman Empire, they would have slaves as pastors and the masters of those same slaves sitting in the church hearing them teach. They didn't think anything of it. They would sit at the communion table together as brothers. Folks in the Roman church would sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off someone else's debts in the church. Christian missionaries throughout history would sell themselves into slavery to go and preach the gospel to slaves where it was forbidden. Anybody of a higher class was not allowed to preach to anybody of a lower class about the gospel, so they willingly stepped down out of the higher caste into the lower one so that they could preach the gospel. And in fact, 
Some states in our own union forbade the preaching of the gospel to slaves because it gave them ideas that they ought to be set free. If the gospel supposedly is something that teaches the suppression and oppression of all people, then why in the world would you ban that? You don't ban something that's going to reinforce what you've got. You ban it because people are going to read it and go, wait a minute, we're brothers and sisters in Christ. What are we doing? But more than any of that, so that's all, that all happened. But here's something you have to remember and never, ever budge on this point. It was the evangelical Christian church that abolished slavery. That is a historical fact. It was William Wilberforce in England and John Newton who led the charge. William Wilberforce was just like anybody else until he became radically and wildly saved. And then he dedicated his entire political life. He was a friend of William Pitt. They expected him to become prime minister one day. He torpedoed all of that to campaign his whole life against, for the abolition of the slave trade. John Newton was his pastor. John Newton had been the captain of a slave ship until he was radically saved. And he came back to England and he wrote a 10,000 word document decrying the slave trade and they used his words to bring an end to it. And John Newton also is the same one that wrote a song you may have heard, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The next time you sing that song, remember that the wretch that wrote that was the captain of a slave ship who repented and lived just long enough to see the slave trade abolished in the year that he died. In the United States of America, there was no large-scale abolition movement until the Second Great Awakening under men like Charles Finney. And all of these reviled Christians began to make some noise about getting rid of slavery. In fact, the abolitionists in our country were willing to fight a civil war to bring an end to slavery. 600,000 men died in that war. And those that were fighting it very seriously believed that the war that they were fighting and the reconstruction that followed was the judgment of God on our nation for permitting slavery that long. Most prominently was Abraham Lincoln himself. In his second inaugural address, he said, Fondly do we hope and fervently do we pray that this mighty scourge of war may speedily pass away. Yet if God will it, that it continue until all the wealth piled by the bondsman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk, meaning until we've lost every dollar we made from slavery, and until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword. As was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be said, the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. The fact that even we in the church dare to hold the Bible in contempt for permitting slavery is a testimony to the effectiveness of the lesson that the Bible taught us against slavery. So you can come and say that it wasn't enough and it, and it couldn't possibly have worked the way God did it. Sisters and brothers, it did work. That's why we're here today. Because of what God did. Around the world, slavery still goes on. If you think it's done everywhere, you're wrong. There are people today that don't have any experience beyond their own country, and they think, well, no one does slavery anymore. Yes, they do. It's everywhere but here, where the gospel has gone. When the gospel takes root, slavery ends. And when the gospel begins to fall apart, nations like Nazi Germany and the Soviet Russians rise up and begin to reinstitute bondage of people. 
That is historical fact and it's theological truth. Don't let people tell you that it was the gospel that brought this institution. It was the gospel that ended it. And I am fiercely proud to be a part of the nation that ended slavery. I'm even more fiercely proud to be a herald of the same gospel that brought an end to the middle passage and the fugitive slave law and the institution of slavery itself. And I will never relinquish the theological and historical fact that it was Christ, his word, and his church that did this. Moreover, I refuse to heed the so-called moral outrage of those who want to decry the Bible for its permission and regulation of slavery when it was the Bible itself that taught such people to despise slavery in the first place. I know of no greater ingratitude than that of men and women who reject the church because of its position on slavery. They are children of their fathers who rejected the church for its position on slavery 150 years ago. Do you hate the bondage of God's people? Then why not stand with the only religion in the world that actually brought an end to it? All these people that want to go after, especially our black brothers and sisters, and tell them, you've got to leave the Christian religion. That's the religion of slavery. And come join what? Islam? Where they still have slavery today? And it was the Arabians that enslaved the Africans and sold them in the first place? Satan is a deceiver and a liar. Don't let him get away with it in your life. Why not stand with the only gospel of actual abolition? Amen. Everybody else wants to talk about their idea and their theory and their worldview that will bring an end to all human suffering. Well, I stand on the one that actually did it in Jesus' name. That's our sixth point. Well, I'm not comfortable with what the Bible says. It was the Bible that actually did the thing that you're hoping for. But we are still, many of us, uncomfortable with the fact that the law permits it. But if that is the case, then we have not truly learned the lesson of the gospel. Let me explain. Ephesians 6 verse 8, in these same passages where Paul is regulating how Christian slaves and slave masters are to act to each other. He says, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. He says, you're going to be judged by the Lord equally and fairly. It doesn't matter what your status is. God does not regard status, slave, free, or otherwise. Jesus said in John 8, 15, you judge according to the flesh, but I don't judge anybody. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says, do not look on the outward appearance for God looks on the heart. Don't gloss over that. Oh yeah, yeah, God doesn't, doesn't judge people according to the flesh. You can't jump over that so quickly. Because most people do not believe that. Most people do not judge people according to the Spirit. Whatever they may say. Every man and every woman is saved equally by the blood of Jesus. Jesus bled out on that cross for kings and for slaves. He died for the one that is living in luxury, flying around on their private jet, just as much as he died for the one digging in a coal mine and watching their life expectancy slowly be reduced with every minute they're down there. He died equally for them both. Therefore, if status does not matter to God, up or down, it should not matter to you. Therefore, whether you are a king or a slave, a rich man or a poor man, 
a boss or an employee, it should not matter to you. 2 Corinthians 5.16 says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. If you learn half of this lesson, that God doesn't treat people according to their status, half of the lesson will cause you to be outraged by somebody's status. Half of the lesson says, being rich doesn't make you something and being poor doesn't make you nothing. Then you'll say, well, that's not fair that he's up there and he's down here if everybody's equal. Let's rip it down. But learning all of that lesson will cause you to disregard even your own status. Those who march for justice very often, not always, but very often define justice by material standards. We need equality. We need justice. What do you mean? They make more money than them. As a Christian, you come in and you say, so what? Well, they're just as equal as they are. You say, yes. So why do you think changing their status is going to change anything? Because those people that march and scream for those kinds of things, they don't really believe that your status doesn't matter. Because all they talk about is wanting to change the system and change status. Because they actually believe that somebody with more is worth more. They actually believe in their heart of hearts that somebody with less is worth less. Which is why they get so agitated when Christians come in and say, yes, let's work for good laws, let's work for sound structures, but the most important thing is the heart. They get angry because they say, how can you say that? They accuse us of believing that it really doesn't matter. But you and I worship a triune God. Three persons, equal in their ontology, yet separate, or I should say distinct, in their economy. The Holy Spirit is in submission to the Son. The Son is in submission to the Father. For a time, the Son was in submission to the Spirit, and the Son has been given all authority by the Father. And not one of them is affected in their being by the role that they play. So your role in marriage does not affect who you are as a person. Your job, your income does not affect who you are as a person. Slave, free, rich, poor, king, serf, it doesn't matter. This is why God doesn't attack structures. Because your place in the hierarchy does not and indeed cannot touch your soul or your value as a person. And if you really believe that, it will lead to more fair and equitable structures of its own accord. But if you come at it with that jealousy and envy and anger, the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Ambition does not produce the righteousness of God. Envy does not produce the righteousness of God. But there is no more radical idea that we regard no one according to the flesh. Whether the president walks through that door or somebody you saw walking down the freeway, it doesn't make a difference. They don't get special treatment. They don't get special, the good chair. They don't get people asking them if they can get anything unless we're doing that for both. We truly believe in the church that money means nothing. Possessions and status and accolades and titles mean nothing. And if you truly believe that, then even if you remain enslaved, you're truly free. Amen. So don't learn half that idea. Learn the whole thing. So number one, we come to the, the teachings in the Bible with a bias against slavery. I think it's a good bias. I'll say it again. Number two, though, 
We see that the Bible does not prohibit slavery, and that makes us uncomfortable. We do see, number three, that God requires righteousness from everyone in that structure, which matters. We have to know that. But then we ask, why didn't God just tear down the whole structure? Because, number four, God knows that if he doesn't regulate certain things, they will lead to worse things. And number five, we know that the ideal that God had was always liberty and freedom for all men. And that's where he was always trying to lead us. But number six, we say, well, how could that work? Number six, historically, it did work. And number seven, the theological lesson we learn from all of this is that your status does not affect your significance before God. When you stand before Jesus, you can't take any of it with you. God's not going to ring you up and he's going to say, Oh, the most high senator, slave master. No, no, no. He's just going to say your name. He's not going to say, oh, look, a slave. Oh, a, a minimum wage employee. No, he's just going to call your name. It's not going to make any difference at the judgment seat of Christ. That is our biblical overview of what the Bible teaches on this matter. We now have some time to get into the first laws related to this matter. And I, I do think that as we get into these, everything I just said from that, that 30,000 feet level view will begin to make more and more sense to you. But I'm very firm on this. Don't let somebody come in and stick a finger in your face and tell you what the Bible teaches or that it's insufficient if they don't know what they're talking about. We're going to study it for itself so that we will say, no, I've read it and I know what it says. And I might not be able to explain it to you as well as my pastor or this author or this person could but I know what the Bible says and I'm not going to budge on it. So will you look at me in chapter 21? And I think we have just enough time, which makes me real happy. Let's look at these first four verses. Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Remember, God is talking to Moses on the mountain. When you buy, probably better should be translated acquire, a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. We could pause and meditate on that for a minute, can't we? If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. So right away, we see some things that make us go, oh, and some things that make us go, oh. Well, let's look at this in context slowly together and break this down. These are the laws for What's translated slave, sometimes translated bond servant. The word is eved in Hebrew. And master, this is the word baal or baal. So the god baal that they worshipped, was his name meant master. But of course it could be used in, in regular context as well. And what you see here is that slavery in Israel was to be for a maximum of six years in most cases. There are some exceptions that we'll look at. But for most, this was the case. Can I say already, this is why comparing the Old Testament slavery to American slavery is a losing game. They bore no resemblance to one another. None. This was much more like indentured servitude. This is what many, actually, to come to America did. They sold themselves as a slave, essentially, for seven years to come to America if they couldn't afford the passage. And then after seven years, they were set free and could go out and do work on their own. It's very similar to military service. I'm going to go sign up for the military for four years. My time is not my own. I have to go where they send me. I have to dress and wear and do where they send me. And they might even send me off to die. But it was chosen. We have a volunteer army. Some don't. 
And it's actually, in many cases, much closer to employment, certainly, than American slavery was. Can I tell you this is the first big point if you're writing this down? Servitude was voluntary in this culture. Voluntary. It was a contract to ensure wages and benefits and stability. Some of us do that to this day. We sign a seven-year contract with our job, and you can't leave. Now, in this case, you also would come in and, in many cases, live in your master's house, eat your master's food. So you might call that employment with benefits. Full benefits, dental and health and all the rest of it. Now, there were other ways that we're going to read about, so I'm not going to touch them so much, to acquire slaves. Sometimes through a judgment against a person who committed a crime. Through conquest. So if you conquered a nation and they surrendered to you, God said, nope, no, you cannot just execute them. You can bring them into your house. And a foreigner was to be a perpetual slave, but you must always remember that they had the opportunity at any time to become a Hebrew, to be circumcised, and therefore be released when the time came. We'll get to that another time, though. So when a Hebrew slave had been engaged for six years, in the seventh, he would go free. And it says, if he had come married with children, then his wife and his kids would go with him. They were released at the same time. But here's our first little hiccup if you don't read it closely. If he was married during his term of service to one of his master's other servants, then when his contract was up, she could not leave, nor the children that were born there. And we say, well, that's sexist and not fair. Time out. Slow down. The key word to include here is she could not leave yet. She had to finish her term of service. So if he had a six-year contract and she had a six-year contract, his finishes, but she's got four more years, she still has to finish the terms of her contract. Now, we don't like that, but the Lord is establishing the law here. To say nothing, by the way, of a master setting her free on his own. This happened all the time in American culture. George Washington, upon his death, freed all of his slaves, for example. Should have done it sooner, but there it is. And in Rome, people would adopt their slaves as their children. This was a very common thing. So there's no reason to assume that if you're a kind master, you say, no, you know what? I'm going to let you go early. But very often, you would have paid a very large sum of money in order to acquire this contract up front. And so you would be out a lot of money. And I can imagine they're probably trying to avoid the abuse of, hey, let, you know, I'm out tomorrow and you got six years. Let's just get married so that you can get out and then we can pocket the money and run. Well, they weren't going to let that happen. And of course, there could have been other living situations where perhaps he was permitted to stay on the farm, so to speak, or he lived in his own house. I don't know. Maybe they were still allowed to live together, but they, she still had to work for him as she had before. Right away, though, you can see the difference. Servitude contracts were a way of life in this culture. This was how you did it. This was how you got a job. This was how you got money. So it's how you got out of debt if you didn't own your own land and own your own stuff. If something bad happened and your farm didn't produce and you owed money and you couldn't eat, you might go out and say, all right, can I work for you for the next six years? Just pay off my debts so that they're not going to come for me. And we still might not like it, but this is a far cry from going down to the slave market and picking somebody out. And now you've got to stay with me for the rest of your life and branding people. It's not even close. And there's more of this to come, by the way. We're going to read in Deuteronomy about the year of Jubilee. Every 50 years, every slave was freed. Didn't matter how long you had been in the process, if it was one year, five years, or the half, second half of your sixth, every slave went free 
all debt was forgiven, and everybody got their ancestral home back. I'd be down to vote for some of that in this country. Every 50 years, all student loans are forgiven, and everybody gets to go back to the house where they grew up and own it, and anybody that's in a bad contract gets to leave and find a new one. Not bad, right? This is the base state of servitude in Israel. So listen, every time you read the word slave in the Old Testament, this is what you need to think. Don't think Uncle Tom's Cabin. That's not what we're talking about here. It was the same word and it was a similar institution, but it was so vastly different that if they had passed some of these laws in America, it would have been quite a remarkable reform. So let's keep that in mind going forward. Verse 5 and 6. So six years, then you go free. If you get married during that time to another servant or another slave, and she's got more time on her contract, she's got to fill up that contract, then you can get married. But, verse 5, but if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. Here's something fascinating. What to do in cases of voluntary slavery? When a slave's contract was up, he could choose to remain in the service of his master for life. It says, you will go to God. The word there is Elohim. So probably legally here before the judges, before the priests, perhaps. Declare his intention. So this is probably to prevent somebody from forcing somebody. Oh, no, he said he wanted to stay with me for life. No, you've got to go and do it legally so that way nobody's being taken advantage of, right? You'd pierce his ear on the doorpost. And they would carry that earring for life as a sign of being a voluntary slave. Now we hear that and we are shocked. That could never, that wouldn't, who would do a thing like that? People are in those situations. They, they, there's no way there could possibly be love between those two. You know, there's a fascinating story that I want to tell you about. I had the opportunity to visit the Hermitage in Nashville, which is Andrew Jackson's old mansion. And Alfred Jackson was a man born into slavery to Andrew Jackson in 1812. He was a horse breeder and maybe even a horse racer as well for the man who, of course, went on to become president. He was married on the plantation. He had two children there. After the Civil War, of course, when he was freed, well after Andrew Jackson had died, he remained there, renting the land, working as a farmer. He was the one who established the mansion as a historical site. He lived to be 98 years old. Had his funeral there and insisted upon his death that he be buried alongside his former master. I want to be buried in the family graveyard with the Jacksons. And his grave is right there in Nashville to this day. And it says, Uncle Alfred, faithful servant of Andrew Jackson. That's what he wanted written on his tombstone. And that story makes us uncomfortable. Because we immediately think, impossible! Or, he must have been brainwashed! But when we do that, we, first of all, we oversimplify history. And we say everything had to have been as bad as it could possibly have been. But number two, you also take away agency from this man. He was a grown man. He could make his own decisions. You don't get to come in and say, oh, you could never have done that. You, you obviously bring No, no. He obviously did pretty well for himself, living in that mansion his whole life. He was a farmer. He had children. He lived to be 98 years old. You read about his life. He, he was a horse breeder. He was a horse racer. Oh, but he was just too dumb. No, no, no. That's when you start to get into that racist stuff, and I'm not into all that. God, according to this passage, desired his people to live in such a way that your slaves would rather work for you than go free. 
Is that so hard to believe? Men commit themselves to generals and presidents and friends all the time. We say we die for each other. Is it so strange to say that we live for each other? Consider Ruth, who renounced her home in Moab to become a Hebrew, even though she would come in with nothing. Think of Naaman, the Syrian general with leprosy, who had a Hebrew servant girl who felt sorry for him and encouraged him to go back to Elisha so that he could be healed. Was this a common thing? I doubt it. But it was the goal for which Israel was to aim. Oppression was out of the question. Once again, I impress upon you the nature of Hebrew slavery. They had been oppressed in Egypt. So right off the bat, God tells them, I want you to be such kind masters to your servants who come to you for debt or any other reason that they would rather stay with you than go away. And in the end, don't you dare forget, it was laws like this that led to the eventual abolition of slavery in America. And in fact, it is with that verse in mind that David wrote in Psalm 40, verse 6, to the Lord, you have given me an open ear. Literal Hebrew there is, you have dug into my ear. What's he saying? He's referring back to that law, where you would spread the earlobe on the doorpost and drive it all through. He says, Lord, I'd rather be your slave than be anybody else. Paul, in the book of Romans, in the book of Titus, opened his letter by saying, Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. James, Peter, and Jude did the exact same thing. They're slaves of God. Even James and Jude, who were the half-brothers of Jesus, called themselves the doulos, the servant, the slave of God. In 1 Corinthians 7.22, I'm going to read this from the New Living Translation because I love how cleanly it puts it. It says, Remember, if you were a slave when the Lord called you, you are now free in the Lord. And if you were free when the Lord called you, you are now a slave of Christ the leveling that happens at the cross. If you are a believer, your ear has not been pierced, but your master, Lord Jesus, was pierced in his hands and his feet as he was nailed to the cross for you. He died so that you might live. He was bound so that you might be set free. John 8, 36 says, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Galatians 5, 13 says, You were called to freedom, my brothers. Luke 4, 18, Jesus said, I have come to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And the worst oppression is that of sin. And that is the slavery from which we were freed in Christ forever. Because of the work of Christ, the love and the justice displayed at the cross in equal measure, I will gladly bow my knee and stand before God and allow my ear to be opened as a bond servant of the one who broke my chains. My life is for his glory now. My will is subsumed within his will now. And I have never been happier. I have never been more full of joy than when I am as walking as an obedient slave of Jesus Christ. You are no longer bound to your status as rich or poor. You never were. God sees you for who you are in love. And because we are free in the spirit, the Lord sends us out to set other people free in the body. The church is still on the front lines, setting slaves and captives free. So if you have not, will you not come and bow the knee to the one who has set so many free, body and soul? Wouldn't you like to serve the greatest of masters for your greatest good? Do not let the devil tempt you with that siren song of so-called freedom. There is no freedom to be found 
except that which may be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ.